Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Advances in the Treatment of Mesothelioma. And today's program is done in collaboration with the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We're delighted to partner with them on this program today. And we also have many other cancer collaborating organizations on this call today. So um, because of your interest in the program today, as well as um, our partnership with uh, the Mesothelioma uh, Research um, Applied Research Foundation, we have on the call today over 353 participants. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Singapore, Sweden, United Kingdom, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. So we actually have people from all over the world on this call today as well. Um, today's program is supported by Borgia Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and I really want to thank the, and the Diane and Napoli Fund, and I want to really thank them for their support of this program today. Um, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawa. Dr. Grawa is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawa is going to be presenting an overview of mesothelioma and communicating with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawa. Well, thank you so much, uh, Carolyn, and uh, hello and welcome to all. Um, I'm very pleased to start off the program, and we'll look forward to the uh, information from our distinguished panelists on this call. As Carolyn mentioned, uh, my role is to introduce the issues involved with malignant mesothelioma and give some background, and briefly to talk about uh, the importance of communication. Of course, we will have time for questions afterwards, and uh, I hope that uh, you will certainly feel free to avail yourself of that. Now, malignant mesothelioma is a cancer of the pleura, the covering of the lung, or of the peritoneum, the lining tissue of the abdomen. And there are some rarer places where it can begin, such as the pericardium, the sac that covers the heart. And uh, most, about 90% of uh, malignant uh, mesothelioma uh, in the U.S. and Europe is plural, is of the pleura, the covering of the lung. So we'll concentrate on pleural mesothelioma. But most of the discussion will be relevant to peritoneal mesothelioma as well. While it is a cancer of the pleura, the covering of the lung and lung cavity, it is not lung cancer. Why not? Well, typical lung cancer is also called bronchogenic carcinoma, that is, it's its genesis or start is within the bronchus, the breathing tubes. That's not so true for mesothelioma. Its start is the covering, the pleura. It even looks very different under the microscope. It can be difficult to diagnose, but nonetheless, experienced pathologists can do special studies and can tell the difference, distinguish between typical lung cancer and mesothelioma. It's 
much less common than lung cancer, maybe 2 or 3% as common, with about 3,000 cases uh, this year expected in the U.S. and Canada, but it's on the rise in many countries. And uh, before describing the illness a little more, maybe we should discuss, uh, um, you know, why is this important? Because, well, the pleura, unlike the lung, is very pain sensitive. We've all heard of pleurisy. So presenting symptoms of mesothelioma often involve pain in, in really the majority of patients by far. Often people have fatigue. It's not quite clear why. It might even be related to the body's defensive reaction to cancer. Shortness of breath can be common, uh, especially because of fluid or a pleural effusion. That's the fluid that collects in this space or scarring that occurs, not allowing the lung to work as fully and properly as it should. Sometimes people have cough or a decreased appetite. The diagnosis is generally made after a chest X-ray or CAT scan, which shows a pattern in the lung that is common or a pleural effusion that is that fluid. Uh, a biopsy is usually done in the dominant area of the abnormality, and uh, the more common condition of lung cancer is often the first one suspected or even of a metastatic cancer that is a cancer coming from elsewhere. Very frequently, pleural fluid is taken, but it's not common to be able to definitively diagnose mesothelioma simply on the pleural fluid sometimes, but not most of the time. So a biopsy of real tissue um, usually leads to the confirmed diagnosis. At least 80% of people with mesothelioma have clearly been exposed to asbestos, and the asbestos fibers can even be seen in some biopsies. So asbestos is the main factor that leads to a person to get mesothelioma, and it can be many, many years later. There are other risk factors or co-carcinogens or contributing factors. Occasionally, uh, a virus has been identified called Simian virus 40, and more recently, some specific genetic abnormalities or mutations that uh, have been identified that uh, can increase the risk of getting mesothelioma. It's more common in men, three to five times more common in men than women, um, asbestos workers in particular, although, of course, not everybody is, is an asbestos worker. There's a lot of asbestos around. It's somewhat age-related. It's much more common in people in their 60s than people in their 30s or 40s. As with many pulmonary or thoracic cancers, malignant mesothelioma, and this is true for peritoneal mesotheliomas as well, they can be difficult diseases to treat, and only the unusual patient can be rendered disease-free. So goals of treatment are, of course, to improve survival, but also to improve the quality of that survival, to enhance quality of life and relieve symptoms. Treatment recommendations are based on staging, whether the disease is limited to the chest and the contained in the pleura, whether it involves the chest wall or even the lymph nodes, or whether it's distant, it's spread beyond the chest as well. Surgical approaches are are common for early stage disease and including draining of the fluid or a chest tube or removal of part of the pleura 
or of the whole lung in a, or the lung in an extra pleural pneumonectomy. Radiotherapy can be useful, and of course for uh, and sometimes is used in conjunction with surgery or for palliation of a particular problem. And uh, Dr. Kindler will appro- will discuss these approaches and chemotherapy and newer approaches, which are quite interesting today as well. Now, I can't overemphasize the importance of communicating clearly with your doctor and nurses about what's bothering you because supportive care, taking care of the issues and the problems that mesothelioma presents or that may occur with treatment are what we're all supposed to be doing and are are very important. Um, We do supportive care directed at the pain, at the shortness of breath, appetite, fatigue, all of those things are so important. Also important in communication is the fact that the disease can seem overwhelming in the beginning and can seem very complicated. And your healthcare team, if we can communicate and individualize, can really simplify that and can make everything clearer and make decision-making a lot easier as well. So individualizing care is to have as positive effect as possible on preserving and improving quality of life and making the right treatment decisions uh, as far as that's concerned. Now, physicians, nurses, social workers, pharmacists, are, among others in oncology, spend a great deal of time educating themselves about the best approaches to these problems, and their organizations such as ASCO and ONS and MASC all are involved, and so we should be considered to be your team. And surveys show that families and patients are equally interested in learning about anti-cancer treatments and ways to prevent or treat symptoms or side effects and live with a cancer such as mesothelioma. So we are in a very important period of treatment development uh, in all cancers. So it is very appropriate to ask questions, to communicate, to find out if these newer treatments or what treatment is most appropriate and how we can take care of uh, these issues. And that's really what your healthcare team, doctors and nurses are, are all about. So it's key to hear your voice. Now, I'd like to um, pass the program back to Carolyn and then on to Dr. Kindler for a discussion of, of treatment of mesothelioma. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Grawler. That was really outstanding and a wonderful way to start the program. So thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker is Dr. Hedy Lean Kindler. And Dr. Kindler is Professor of Medicine, Medical Director, Gastrointestinal Oncology, Director of Mesothelioma Program, the University of Chicago Medicine. And Dr. Kindler is going to present on treatment choices and the role of clinical trials. It's my pleasure now to um, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kindler. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you today about treatment choices for mesothelioma. When we speak about these options, I'm referring to surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, and any of these can be parts of clinical trials. So let's start with surgery. For pleural mesothelioma, the surgery that people tend to think about first is a very large surgery called an extrapleural pneumonectomy. That takes out the two linings around the lung, the lung itself, the diaphragm muscle between the chest and the abdomen, and the lining around the heart all in one piece. 
That's a very large surgery and has specific indications. But these days, more and more, one moves to a smaller surgery, basically like peeling a grape in a box, peeling the linings around the lung, the visceral and parietal pleura, taking off the diaphragm muscle if it is involved and the pericardium if it is involved, but leaving the lung in place. And stage for stage in most patients, these have equivalent outcomes, but there are fewer side effects with the smaller surgery. If one has a peritoneal mesothelioma involving the abdomen, the surgery is a cytoreductive surgery where you try to remove as much disease as possible, and then you do a belly wash of hot chemotherapy called HIPEC that then tries to kill any further cancer cells. But whether in the chest or the abdomen, the principle is the same. Maximal tumor debulking, you want to try to remove as much disease as possible. But just like peeling the white stuff off of an orange, you will never get, almost never get 100% of the tumor removed. And so in general, one needs to do an additional modality, whether radiation or chemotherapy. Radiation is a beam that you aim directly at the involved place, and it can be used both for decreasing pain as well as to prevent the disease from coming back, whether in the chest, um, at the site of a surgical intervention like a prior um, thoracoscopy scar, or in the half chest if one has done the larger extrapleuropneumonectomy and removed the lung. And sometimes if one has done the smaller um, uh, pleurectomy decortication. I'm going to spend the rest of my talk talking about chemotherapy and clinical trials. Now, chemotherapy is cytotoxic. It kills cancer cells indiscriminately, usually by interfering with their DNA. And chemo exploits the fact that cancer cells generally grow faster than normal cells, so they are more likely to be killed with chemotherapy. Why do we give chemotherapy to meso patients? Because chemotherapy helps patients live longer, helps patients feel better, and shrinks or stabilizes the cancer. So the only FDA-approved drug for mesothelioma was developed more than 15 years ago. It's called Pemetrexid, also known as Olympta. And in a large randomized trial that compared Pemetrexid cisplatin to placebo and cisplatin showed that uh, patients who got the combination had greater tumor shrinkage, they lived longer, and their disease stayed controlled for longer. And even though that chemo caused side effects, it helped to improve quality of life, it improved shortness of breath, it decreased pain, and it improved lung function. Now, sometimes we substitute the drug carboplatin for cisplatin because it causes fewer side effects in most patients and um, has similar effectiveness. Unfortunately, no drugs have been FDA-approved for mesothelioma since this trial was completed in 2003, but there are other drugs available. And one is the drug Avastin, also known as Bevacizumab. It is a drug that targets the blood vessels that feed the tumors, targeting something called VEGF. 
And in a large randomized trial done in France, patients who received Avastin in addition to standard um, Olympta and Cisplatin had their disease controlled for longer um, and uh, they lived longer. Now, this um, combination is only safe to give to patients under the age of 75 years. And while it is approved in certain cancer guidelines, it is not FDA approved. So some, but not all, insurance companies will pay for it. Now, if standard chemotherapy stops working or the cancer grows back after the chemotherapy is stopped, one can sometimes retreat with the same drugs if the cancer was controlled for six months or more beforehand. If not, there are other options, including simply controlling one's symptoms or other standard off-the-shelf chemotherapy drugs, such as venorobine, also known as navobine, or gemcitabine, known as gemzar. And they don't work as well as Olympta does, but they do work in some patients. And at that point, another good option is a clinical trial of a new drug. Why do we do clinical trials? Because if we keep using the same treatments, we'll never find a better one. There are a number of different types of clinical trials that patients can participate in. Phase one trials try to assess what is the best dose of a drug and what is the frequency that you should be giving it at. We don't always know if those drugs actually can shrink tumors. Phase two trials already have some preliminary data on them and are offered to a group of patients who are similar in terms of their disease, how many prior treatments they have received, etc. And those trials look for how active is that drug in that disease. Phase three trials are the comparator trials, which compare the standard treatment, for example, Olympta plus cisplatin, to the experimental treatment, perhaps adding in the third drug or perhaps using a dummy pill or sugar water, such as a placebo. In the past, because mesothelioma is an uncommon disease, there were not many clinical trials. But in the last few years, there has been a tremendous amount of research on the biology of mesothelioma, and now there are many, many trials that are targeted towards the biology of this disease. And we can think about them um, in two major categories. One of them are targeted therapies, the other is immunotherapy. So targeted therapy targets the biology of a patient's cancer. Think about it, some cancers as having an on-off switch that is signaling pathways that promote cell growth that are abnormally switched on in a patient's cancer. And targeted therapy can block these pathways and turning that growth signal off. There are a number of different pathways in mesothelioma that will suggest molecular targets. These include things on the surface of the cell, common genetic alterations, certain cellular targets on the inside, or on the outside of the cell. And 
And these include um, targets such as mesothelin, which is on the surface of the epithelial and mixed mesothelioma cell. Um, and there are quite a number of drugs in this category. And then there are molecular targets such as BAP1, NF2, CDKN2A, um, and ASS1, just to list a few that are currently in clinical trials. The other very exciting pathway um, that is being evaluated in mesothelioma is immunotherapy. So immunotherapy drugs target the immune system, and these can be vaccines that stimulate an immune response to attack the tumor, or more commonly, immune checkpoint blockers. These are drugs that turn off the brakes in the immune system so that your body recognizes the tumor and can attack it itself. And these are um, drugs that target pathways such as CTLA-4 or PD-1. And these days, drugs such as um, Keytruda, otherwise known as Pembrolizumab, or Updevo, otherwise known as Nuvolumab, and others are widely used in diseases such as lung cancer and melanoma. And there's some very exciting data on these drugs in mesothelioma. And I think that we will learn in the next few years uh, their potential in this disease. Uh, so um, I would summarize by saying that the future is that we hopefully will be able to individualize therapy in mesothelioma patients, do something called precision medicine, profile the tumor so that we can identify the specific abnormality and in the future be able to decide which treatment is the best for each patient. Today, those are part of clinical trials, but hopefully in the future, we'll be able to make enough progress against this disease that we'll be able to do that for all patients. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Kindler. That was really excellent, and um, I know there'll be questions for you um, during the Q&A, and um, very excellent information. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Robert Daly. Uh, Dr. Daly is Assistant Defending Physician, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, and Dr. Daly is going to be addressing managing side effects, discomfort and pain, and quality of life and lifestyle concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daly. Thank you for, so much for inviting me to speak. In speaking of symptom management and side effects in mesothelioma, it is critical to emphasize the importance of sound patient and clinician communication. This is an essential component of our role as clinicians, and is highlighted in guidelines on the treatment of malignant pleural mesothelioma. This communication helps to provide early detection and intervention of symptoms to prevent their worsening, something I will address further. On this point, our role as, as healthcare providers is to explain issues of treatment and side effects in plain language so that patients may make informed decisions. We also must explain that as our knowledge of the disease grows, so do patients' options for care. And while this may seem complex, we must take each step in their care one at a time and explain how each step may affect the next, clarifying the potential benefits, toxicities, and possible outcomes. And this discussion and decision-making process should include acknowledgement of these toxicities that are clinical, as well, though, as the social, financial, and age-related issues. Patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma often experience symptoms both from their disease and from the anti-cancer treatments. 
Palliation of these symptoms will often require a multidisciplinary approach, including members from medical oncology, surgical oncology, radiation oncology, and supportive oncology teams. A question often asked by patients is whether chemotherapy will improve symptoms and quality of life. This question has been explored in several studies and is addressed in the American Society of Clinical Oncology Guidelines. In the pivotal study just mentioned by Dr. Kindler of cisplatinum and pemetrexid, the investigators used the lung cancer symptom scale to evaluate quality of life. The trial demonstrated significant improvements in shortness of breath and pain with combination chemotherapy. In the more recent trial mentioned about avastin or bevacizumab to the standard pemetrexid cisplatinum chemotherapy, there are improvements shown in progression-free and overall survival, but treatment also improved quality of life above baseline in both arms. Finally, the Southwest Area Mesothelioma and Pemetrexid trial assessed health-related quality of life in 73 consecutive patients who were fit for first-line treatment. 58% of patients, 58 patients received chemotherapy and 15 received best supportive care. And patients who received chemotherapy maintained their quality of life better than the best supportive care group, with the latter experiencing worsening shortness of breath and pain. Your medical oncologist will assess you at the time of your appointment to determine the best treatment for you based on your physical functioning comorbidities. In some cases where a patient's functional status has declined, the oncologist might make a consideration at that time for a single-agent chemotherapy to minimize any toxicities related to treatment. The main side effects to be aware of with the standard of care regimens discussed are as follows. With the cisplatinum pemetrexid regimen, there are hematologic toxicities, which means a decrease in blood count including the neutrophils, which fight infection. And thus, a fever during chemotherapy is a reason to immediately contact your healthcare team. Other side effects include fatigue, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration, mouth sores, decreased appetite, rash, taste changes, and peripheral neuropathy, which is a numbness or tingling in the hands and feet. With cisplatinum, you must also be aware of its risk for kidney toxicity and hearing toxicity. Your provider will work with you to address these toxicities, and we have made significant strides in supportive care medications to manage these side effects. With the drug Avastin or Bevacizumab, which was also mentioned, there is the introduction of other side effects because of its mechanism of action, including the risk for hypertension, which is a high blood pressure, bleeding or clotting disorders, and kidney injury. Again, you'll work with your clinician to determine if there are any contraindications to using this medication, such as a history of prior blood clots or bleeding issues. We also work closely with our surgical colleagues to manage symptoms from mesothelioma. A common symptom is shortness of breath, often referred to medically as dyspnea, which can be caused by a pleural effusion or a collection of fluid around the lung. In patients who have a symptomatic pleural effusion, oftentimes a palliative approach is taken, such as a tunneled permanent catheter placement or a pleurodesis, which is a surgical procedure used to prevent and treat pleural effusions. Pleurodesis and pleural drainage can provide substantial symptomatic relief to patients with shortness of breath caused by a pleural effusion. 
but a multidisciplinary input is needed from our surgical consultations to optimize the management of a pleural effusion. A pericardial effusion or a collection of fluid around the heart can be another symptomatic manifestation of mesothelioma, which again would require collaboration with our surgical colleagues. This needs to be managed in an expedited way, and interventions involve a surgical procedure to drain the fluid, usually resulting in prompt amelioration of symptoms. In addition to our surgical colleagues, we often turn to our radiation oncology colleagues as well for management of symptoms. Radiation therapy is an effective treatment modality to palliate patients with symptomatic disease. Tumor growth causing pain or obstructive symptoms is a clear indication to consider radiation therapy and can provide significant relief of symptoms. As this is a conference on advances in care as well, I'd also like to highlight where the field is moving with respect to symptom management, functionality, and quality of life. At the American Society of Clinical Oncology session last June, Dr. Ethan Bosch presented the results of a landmark study on patient-reported outcomes for symptom monitoring during cancer treatment. The study hypothesis was that proactive symptom monitoring during anti-cancer treatment will improve symptom management, leading to better clinical outcomes. In the study, patients receiving chemotherapy were randomized to self-report on 12 common symptoms prior to and between visits via the web with email alerts generated to their clinical team based on their responses versus our standard of care symptom monitoring. The study investigated outcomes in quality of life, emergency room visits, and survival, and the study showed benefit across all three measures. As technology and e-health approaches evolve, ongoing studies are examining how we can work with patients to better detect their symptoms and intervene early to improve their quality of life and extend their life. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. David. That was really outstanding and really so helpful to really um, go over the side effects and, and how they can be managed and the importance of really working with the healthcare team. So thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Donna Wilson. Ms. Wilson is Pulmonary Clinical Nurse Specialist, Fitness Coordinator, Integrative Medicine Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, and Ms. Wilson is going to um, address physical activity issues and tips. And it's my pleasure to turn this program with my esteemed colleague, Ms. Wilson. Hello, everybody, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm very passionate about um, what I'm going to tell you today because now you've been listening to all of these, you know, overwhelming treatments um, that cause so many challenges um, for your everyday quality of life. Um, one of the things that I, I have a tagline, and my tagline is keep moving. It, there are days that I know that you don't want to move, and, but what I want to start with even is that remember the most important thing, how and why you breathe. You breathe using the muscles of your chest wall. So becoming like any skeletal muscle, your legs, your arms, or anything, if you become sedentary and breathe a little bit more shallow because of discomfort on the chest wall, or uh, you will then your muscles become more atrophied. And you then, to take a big deep breath is going to be much more difficult. So it's really important, no matter what, is to always think about doing your breathing exercises. As you breathe in through your nose, you get the depth of um, respiration, and you really use your diaphragm. Um, 
and then what happens is you want to blow out long and slow, not vigorously. I want it to be long and slow so that you can really get extend that breath out to get a breath of breath in. The reason I'm going over this first is because in order for you to exercise, you have to coordinate your pattern of breathing with exercise. Um, I've been working with um, patients and exercise uh, with cancer for about the last 15 years. Um, just that's solely what I do all day is I exercise people. And I, I, I can honestly tell you it can make a huge difference. I'm going to use the example as if you had, I mean, and I have a, a client who had um, um, a pneumonectomy, a, a and and the pleura moved, um, and she had the right lung removed and only had the left lung, came to me with some shortness of breath, and now I can tell you, this is three, five years later, she can walk five miles a day, she can do stair climbing, she knows when she has to stop to take a couple of deep breaths, but she knows how to control her pattern of breathing, but it hasn't stopped or made a change in her quality of life and her way she wants to live her life. I think that it's very, very important to maintain the muscle strength of everything. So I say, when, then we say, well, what, wh why? I mean, when you think about it, when you think about all of the, the complications and the side effects of the medication, whether it's surgery, whether it's radiation, whether, you know, it's um, chemotherapy, all of these have side effects. And the big side effect is fatigue. Cancer fatigue doesn't go away with sleeping. Cancer fatigue actually gets better with movement because when you start moving and moving the muscles, you start stimulating all other kinds of pathways in the muscle, and it takes away the, the, the fatigue of the muscle and improves the strength of the muscle. The pain, yes, pain will, you know, we need to keep that under control with the proper pain medication. But I also find that if people don't move, what happens is you get really, you get stiff. Um, everything sort of shortens. Your ligaments and tendons all shorten a little bit. So when you go to move, everything's going to feel more uncomfortable. So it's important to think about a lot of upper body stretching. Think about arm circles. You can do arm circles front to back, front of your body, around, just to move that shoulder and get it rowing. The most important thing with all lung patients is to get the, the chest wall up and to take your hands. If you put your hands down at your side, take your palms and put them forward and get your thumbs back. It's going to rotate your shoulders back and you're going to take some nice shoulder rolls and open up the chest and breathe better. But the most important thing, the benefits of exercise decreases fatigue. It improves flexibility. It can manage your pain. It can just improve your muscular strength. Therefore, when again, when we think of one of those terrible complications of some of the chemotherapy drugs of peripheral neuropathy, um, and then your balance is off because your feet feel a little bit numb, I think that if you improve the strength and you maintain the strength of the legs and the up and the core and the upper body, you can really tolerate things better and your balance can be better. We really work on strength training to really improve um, uh, patients with peripheral neuropathy. And the, the most important thing about the exercise is when you find out that you can start to do things and you can start to be more mobile, you, it actually takes some of your anxiety away or your stress away. It, some people tell me that it improves their sleep. 
So what the American Cancer Society and the American College of um, Sports Medicine many years ago have come up with a, a list of things that we would like all patients with cancer to do. And we'd like them to move um, 150 minutes a week. So that's really only about 30 minutes a day. And, you know, you might want to start out slowly um, and you might want to put yourself on a walking program and say, okay, I think today I'll just walk 15 minutes. Tomorrow I might walk 20 minutes. Then once you get to 30 minutes a day, then within that 30-minute period, you might do a little bit of interval training, maybe walk a few blocks or one block faster and then slow down. The most important thing I can't impress upon you is to avoid inactivity. Getting Doing nothing just makes you feel more short of breath. The best example I can take is actually have worked with lung patients for about 30 years, 40 years, is that stair climbing, when I mention stair climbing to anyone, they always go, oh, no, I can't do the stairs. But the truth is if you learn to go up the stairs using the breathing the correct way, you really will get up the stairs feeling much more comfortable. And how that is is if you put one foot on the step and you breathe out, then you go to the next step and breathe out. So what that comes down to say to me, you all is that the power of your breath is to breathe out. The more air you get out as you breathe out the carbon dioxide and the toxins of your body, you're breathing in more oxygen to really oxygenate your body and feel better. So every exercise you do, you want to always think about breathing out. Um, another very simple exercise that's very important is because as we age, we start losing some strength of our leg muscles. The most common muscle to go fast is that big thigh muscle, that quadricep muscle. So doing a chair sit, chair stand every day, getting up and down out of a chair five to 10 to 20 times a day, but do it in a, in a consecutive time, breathing out as you're, you're standing up. And what happens is you'll strengthen those large muscle groups of your hips and your legs. So therefore, when you want to get on the bus or get in a taxi or take a nice long walk, your, your legs will be strong enough to do that. There have been numerous numerous studies to show that exercise makes a difference. Um, there's a program that was done with lung cancer patients and they had them exercise, you know, at, at home for three weeks um, and six to six weeks. And what they did is they measured their six-minute walk test before and after that six weeks of exercise and really showed that they did dramatically better. Um, they were much more functional in their everyday life and they had a better quality of life. So muscular weakness is you, you just really sometimes feel that you can't do things. So what are you going to do for the muscular weakness? We can do some, you can use elastic bands, you can use free weights, um, or you can just use your own body weight. You can do a wall push-up, or you can do a squat against the wall. You can stand against the wall and sit there and start with 15 to 30 seconds and work yourself up to be able to do a minute a day of a wall squat. And just doing some arm circles is a great way to start. But everywhere on the Internet you can find great exercise programs for upper body. And for you with mesothelioma, you really want to keep that upper body good and strong. 
I'm going to go back now to some breathing exercises that I think are really important. There's a breathing exercise that I've worked with patients with a long time, whether you have just part of your diaphragm or you hold two sides of your diaphragm. There's, if you breathe quickly in and out of your nose, you will strengthen the diaphragm. The diaphragm is the skeletal muscle, just like all your other muscles. So if you take the time and you say, okay, just sit down in a very comfortable position and breathe quickly in and out of your nose, you will strengthen that diaphragm. The diaphragm is responsible for helping you take a really large, deep breath. So by taking a large, deep breath, you need that diaphragm to be strong as you're breathing in. And also, think about your stomach muscles as as you breathe out, contract those stomach muscles so you can get a longer breath out. The more air you get out, the better breath you can get in. So overall, the most important thing is avoid inactivity and keep moving. Start off slow and then keep adding a little bit more all the time because what will happen is you'll be able to tolerate the treatments better of um, mesothelioma. I mean, whether it's chemotherapy, surgery, or radiation. But most importantly, it'll even decrease your level of breathlessness. Um, Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Wilson. That was wonderful. And we all are going to remember your tagline and keep moving. And I think um, it'll be our mantra. We'll all remember it. And I think people will, um, it'll resonate for many people on the call. So thank you. And our next speaker is um, Ms. Melinda Katsian. And Ms. Katsian is Chief Executive Officer, Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. And uh, Ms. Um, uh, Katsian will pre- present on the free programs and services of the Mesothelioma. Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, and it's really our great pleasure to partner with that organization in today's program. And it's my pleasure also to uh, turn the program with my esteemed colleague, um, Ms. Melinda Katsian. Well, Caroline, thank you so much. It is a pleasure for the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation to partner with Cancer Care. Um, We know that working together, we can accomplish so much more. So thank you. Um, the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation is um, a nonprofit organization. We are actually located in Washington, D.C., but we actually provide services to patients nationally and actually even internationally. Um, our areas of service include funding mesothelioma research through our peer-reviewed funding program, which is based on a model of the NIH. And to date, we are proud to say that we've funded over $10 million in promising research. Um, You can learn more about our research on curemusa.org. But more important, in addition to our research, we provide specific help to patients and their families. One of our goals is to ensure that patients are always aware of their treatment options. Um, We do provide one-on-one consultations with patients that provide them with the opportunity to ask any questions that they have. We want to make sure that patients have the opportunity to clarify their understanding of the disease. And many times we just walk them through um, what their treatment options are and how we can help them. We will explain reasons why their doctor is approaching the treatment that way. And ultimately, we'll just try to make a patient feel in control of their diagnosis and in control of their treatment plan. Another thing that we do is Centers with mesothelioma programs are only available in certain areas of the countries. We actually have developed a financial aid program. This financial aid program helps patients obtain financial help to travel to those centers. 
And so if patients who are listening are at all interested in getting support, our goal really is to ensure that all patients, regardless of their ability to pay, is being seen by a mesothelioma specialist. We want to make sure that the cost of travel is not hindering them from seeing a specialist and getting the best treatment and care that they can. Um, our other area of support is our virtual support groups provided via either online, um, on Facebook, or over the telephone. Through these support groups, patients and families are able to connect with others. They learn from each other's experiences. They um, share about their diagnosis, treatment, side effects, as well as, you know, whether it be interpersonal or family issues that arise during such a stressful time in their lives. In fact, most of our community members find this to be our number one resource. They find it so valuable to speak to another mesothelioma patient or to hear from somebody else that is facing what they're facing. It really makes sure that the patient is not feeling alone. Our final sort of thing that we offer patients is we do offer conferences and seminars to help patients learn about mesothelioma. We have a conference coming up in Minneapolis, Minnesota on June 6th. I mean, I'm sorry, June 8th. And we also have one in New York City on October 8th. Um, so please plan if you're interested in learning more um, and actually being able to hear from doctors in person. Please check that out. Um, to learn more about our programs, you can go to curemiso.org. I know I have limited time here, but please take the time to look us up. We are happy to help you. We're here to help you. We want to make sure that you're getting your best treatment options possible. Um, so look us up on curemiso.org or feel free to call us at 703-879-3824, and we would be happy to help you in any way that we can. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda. That was really wonderful. And actually, um, we will actually be sending out all this information again to everyone, but what a wonderful resource for everyone on this call. So thank you. And our next and final speaker is Mr. Wynn Burkle. Mr. Burkle is actually a Director of Social Service, Long Island, and a Lung Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Mr. Burkle will be uh, presenting uh, the Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and then we will take questions. So start to organize your questions, so we'll have lots of questions for the Q&A. Uh, Mr. Burkle? Thank you, Carolyn. You know, I'm sure most of us remember the time we moved into our first new home, or even our last new home, and I'm sure most of us wondered how we were ever going to find our way in this new community or neighborhood. Many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from the welcome wagon, or maybe a very helpful neighbor who helped us find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. The more things we were able to connect to in our new neighborhood, the more we felt that we had things under control. You know, being diagnosed with mesothelioma is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Fortunately, Cancer Care serves in the role of that good neighbor who is there to help you find your way in this strange new place. Here's how. Cancer Care's educational program reaches out to include the array of connected education workshops which provide vital information on the latest advances in cancer treatments, such as today's program. Other Connect Education workshops provide practical strategies and hints for coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer. 
Replays of these workshops are available both online at a Cancer Care's website, www.cancercare.org, and via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these replays to their iPods and MP3 players and listen to them while commuting to work or sitting in a waiting room. The education program also provides Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets, which are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. Over the years, we have distributed millions of these very popular publications. Head to our website, www.cancercare.org, to download or order these valuable resources. While one is at our website, they can also sign up for Cancer Care's popular free e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care support services are provided by its professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of mesothelioma. These issues include assistance with emotional issues in which they assess clients and provide appropriate helpful psychosocial interventions, assistance with practical issues such as financial assistance through Cancer Care's limited financial assistance program and referrals to the Cancer Care Copay Assistance Foundation and other financial assistance resources. Assistance with resource finding, in which our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help cancer patients. Assistance with navigating the system, in which cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in health care. Assistance with communications, in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new situation. Cancer Care social workers provide this assistance in a variety of friendly settings, such as at Cancer Care's national office and its regional offices in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling face-to-face. Over the phone, where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care helpline, 1-800-813-HOPE, and longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling with a cancer care social work, as well as connecting with other people in professionally facilitated telephone support groups, and online, where people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led online support groups, which are available 24-7 for participation. You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of mesothelioma. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like that good neighbor, is there with you. Connect with us at the www.cancercare.org website or by talking with us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wynn. And now we have time for questions, and um, we have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask... Crystal, to bring all of our speakers on board, and um, actually, um, and if you could explain to people, uh, Crystal, how to queue up for questions. We have people already online to ask questions, but if you would go ahead, go ahead and explain to everyone so everyone knows how to ask questions, that would be great. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question. 
We have a question in front of our online participants, and I'm going to ask Dr. Grawler if you could address this question. If I have been exposed to asbestos, should I get checked for mesothelioma? Well, I think that, uh, you know, it's very difficult not to be exposed to asbestos. So I think simply because one has been exposed, uh, you want to then minimize exposure thereafter. But if you're otherwise feeling healthy, your breathing is good, then uh, I would not be specifically checked, but I would mention it to my doctor the next time I have a general checkup. If you're not feeling well, then, of course, you need to seek uh, health care. But if... Um, you do not have symptoms if you're otherwise healthy and you simply were exposed. I don't think you uh, have to do uh, anything more than mention it to your doctor at the next visit. Excellent. Thank you. Um, my next question uh, for Dr. Kindler. Um, so does multimodal therapy produce more results in fighting mesothelioma? So the... It depends upon the patient, as with any treatment. So in order to even be able to undergo surgery, one has to have the right subtype of mesothelioma. The disease has to be amenable to surgery. Um, if we do know that giving chemotherapy plus surgery or surgery plus radiation is uh, provides a longer survival and, in general, better outcomes than simply one modality by itself. Uh, so, in general, more is better than less, but it really does have to be individualized to the patient. Excellent. Um, thank you. And um, another question from our online participants. Um, so how effective, I'm going to give this question to um, uh, um, to Ms. Wilson. Um, how effective is alternative treatment such as yoga and meditation? It's actually excellent. Um, all, I think that the yoga is good for stretching and flexibility and also for strengthening. It also is, and my mind and body meditation is extremely good because, one, it's relaxation, and it's really excellent for good deep breathing and breathing exercises and learning them. So it really does help um, to a great deal. We do a lot of meditation here with um, and acupuncture as well if there's pain issues or peripheral neuropathy of, of that nature. But other alternative things are helpful for symptom control. It's very important. Excellent. And um, thank you. And another question for um, uh, Dr. This question for Dr. Daly. Are imaging scans, blood tests, biomarkers, or biopsies the best way to diagnose if I have mesothelioma? The best way to diagnose if you have mesothelioma. So I think the the key to any diagnosis is pathology, as was mentioned uh, earlier in the discussion. So that biopsy is going to be key because we have to determine first that the diagnosis is mesothelioma and then also the histologic type because, as we had discussed, that will really influence what treatment you're going to receive. So absolutely, the pathology and getting the diagnosis of mesothelioma is the critical first step. And then the imaging comes into play when we're thinking about about staging and treatment for disease. Excellent. Um, and um, we have another question for Dr. Kimler. Um, does the location of mesothelioma affect treatment plans and prognosis? 
Well, certainly the um, primary location of chest pleural mesothelioma versus peritoneal mesothelioma versus lining around the heart, pericardial or tunica vaginalis, lining around the scrotum does affect the treatment options since if one is including surgery, the surgeries are quite different. Uh, Biologically, there are certain peritoneal mesotheliomas that are uh, slower growing than some uh, pleural mesotheliomas. Um, so there is indeed some difference in the location of the disease. Uh, Thank you. And this is a complicated question. I'm going to give it to Dr. Grawl to start. Um, but what is the typical mesothelioma latency period? It's a very interesting question. It often can be decades, many decades, and uh, I recall seeing a uh, patient who um, was a clergyman who, uh, when we did the history, we finally came back to uh, during his college years working in the summer uh, with asbestos as the best possible reason, and this gentleman was in his 70s when it was diagnosed. So there can be, for many people, quite a long latency period um, as such. It's uh, uh, not a common disease in young people, but I have seen people in their 30s as well. Dr. Kinsler, any comments on that? Sure. I mean, one commonly will see a range anywhere from uh, 20 to 50 years um, latency, though one certainly can see um, even 60 or 70 years. I've certainly seen um, older patients who were exposed in childhood. But, you know, you never really know what you were doing 50 years ago, and so it's very hard in some patients to definitively identify exactly where that asbestos exposure was. Excellent point. Great. Good. These are wonderful questions, I must say. Wonderful audience here. Um, so here's a question um, from one of our online participants. Um, I'm going to give this question to Dr. Kindler. Um, for peritoneal patient post-cytoreductive HIPEC, what mm-hmm. dictates need additional chemo treatment? Is is a CAT scan best surveillance option? So while the role of chemotherapy before or after surgery is pretty well defined in pleural mesothelioma, it's slightly more controversial in peritoneal mesothelioma. And so determining whether or not someone should have chemotherapy um, by vein after they have um, had the cytoreductive surgery and the um, belly wash chemotherapy is in part um, determined by how aggressive that tumor looks like under the microscope. And whether one is male or female, because men tend to have a more aggressive mesothelioma than a woman will. Uh, but let's say that one has either received or not received it, and then one is being followed with CT scans or MRI scans, then when the disease um, appears to be regrowing, um, one follows that serially, and if either a patient is developing symptoms or um, the disease seems to uh, be growing at a faster pace, that's when one would then consider initiating chemotherapy 
or sometimes redoing the surgery. If it has been a couple of years after the initial surgery, one can often have a second and occasionally even a third surgery if the disease remains confined to the belly. Thank you. Um, so I have and this is one more, this will be our last um, online question. Um, so um, the, the question uh, is for, um, for Dr. Um, Daly. I am eight months down the road from diagnosis and am on maintenance chemo, Olympta. I have responded to the chemo and may now be able to have surgery. Um, so the question is, um, and this person does live in another country, um, so um, if the person can travel to the U.S. for other options. Um, so, but just in terms of the general question um, that um, they've been on maintenance chemo and now the issue of surgery comes up. Can you just address this in a general way and we'll then respond to our, we'll have our um, our. our a call and then go back to the treating healthcare team for the other parts of it. Sure. Um, so the, it sounds like she has gotten some chemotherapy and is now um, being recommended for surgery or potentially uh, recommended for surgery. I think with mesothelioma, it is very much a multidisciplinary disease that you're treating. So in her discussion, she should involve both the medical oncologist and the surgical oncologist in making the decision about surgery. I think uh, it is a surgery that's best done with a surgeon who has done many of those types of procedures. So you really want to be at a center, a center of excellence for the surgery. Um, and you really need to understand um, both what surgery is being recommended and the morbidity and mortality associated with that surgery. And you have to understand who that surgeon's going to be and their prior experience with mesothelioma surgery. So I think uh, there's a, a, a couple of um, ways to approach that, but I think having that multidisciplinary approach will be really essential and also making sure that she's seen in a center of excellence for mesothelioma would be my other recommendation there. Well, those are excellent points. Um, they're excellent. And, and for others, one way, there will be our last question, but other thoughts about this as well. This is really important. We haven't really touched on where does one go for one treat, one's treatment. So do others want to comment as well or... Yeah, I would simply, this is Hetty, I would simply say that this is an uncommon disease and um, that it is very important to have someone as your quarterback who has more expertise in the disease. Uh, clearly, surgery and radiation should be done in a center of excellence, and the planning of the treatment can be very helpful to have somebody who sees this because mesothelioma is not lung cancer, and one does need a specific expertise to help uh, the patient have the optimal treatment outcomes. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And I want to also um, thank our, our, our participants and those of you who have asked such really great questions, really very thoughtful questions, which have both hopefully the answers have helped you, but they've also hopefully helped everybody on the call. And we also hope that this information that you've gotten on the call today will help you to go back to treating healthcare team and, and make more informed decisions, ask more informed questions of your healthcare team. 
Um, now, as I mentioned before, if we didn't get your question, I want to let you know places to get your questions answered. So one place to go is, of course, your treating healthcare team. Um, but many of you like to go other places to get information as well. So we are have partnered today with the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, and that's a wonderful resource for all of you, and you'll be getting more information about them. You've gotten it on the brochures and materials on our website, but you'll be getting more information about them. But in addition to that, I often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute. They have a toll-free number, 1-800-422-6237. They also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and it's a wonderful site to go to. They have a live chat feature where you can actually post your question and get um, your questions answered by an information specialist. And for those of you both in the U.S. and internationally, it's a wonderful resource to get the most up-to-date information from them, as well as, again, from the Mesothelium Applied Research Foundation. Um, and for those of you who would like to get some help with um, just general coping with your mesothelioma, with um, concerns about um, just practical issues that you may have or financial concerns you may have, or just would like to join a support group or talk to one of our social workers here, then I would suggest you just contact Cancer Care, and we'll be sending you all that information. The, the, uh, those numbers are all over the materials you received, and you'll be getting more of that information from us. Um, and in addition, um, of course, um, the Mesothelium Research Foundation also is a nice place to contact as well because of the conferences and meetings that they have specific to mesothelioma. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And most importantly, as we conclude the call, I don't want anyone to think that you're alone in coping with mesothelioma. I know you may feel that way often because you may think, I don't know anybody else with this disease. And we want you to feel now you're part of this uh, support world here of other organizations that really would like to be able to uh, be there to help you. So don't hesitate to contact us. Um, we're here to help you. And you don't have to be in crisis to contact us. You can just contact to see who we are and how we can all help you. So again, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for participating on this really amazing program. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.